0: invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, if you're using a, a if you don't have a physical copy of the scripture, you can use a, a black uh, pew Bible, the Bible in the rack in front of you, and you'll find Acts 1 on page 909, 909. Uh, before we jump into the message, let me just say it's good to be back here in New Hampshire. Uh, many of you probably don't know, I was uh, taking a trip this past week I was able to uh, go to Cedarville, Ohio, to Cedarville uh, University, where several of our uh, graduates from our youth group and Christian school are students. I was able to meet with some of them, find out how they're doing, and uh, make a connection. I was able to visit their chapel. Uh, and then I flew out to Ankeny, Iowa, uh, to speak in chapel at Faith Baptist, Baptist Bible College. Uh, We don't have students at Faith Baptist Bible College, but I was able to uh, meet some wonderful faculty, staff, students there and uh, had a great time there out w- midwest. It, it felt so westy out there. I don't know any other way to describe it. it just was very westy. And uh, I get back here, I was just glad to see uh, mountains and bigger trees and just, it just felt like home. It just felt like home. Uh, you know, last week marked three years since my family and I have been uh, here at Trinity Baptist Church, and it, what a wonderful time it has been Uh, how it does so quickly feel like home, and how much you feel like family. Indeed, you are, and it is good to be together with you. Um, Acts chapter 1, we are going to be dealing with the largest portion of uh, Scripture uh, that we have dealt with in one service to this point here through our series. If you're new with us, we are in a a sermon series through the book of Acts, and uh, we are emphasizing this major theme that the work of Jesus did not end at Jesus' death, His crucifixion. Of course, it did not end then, because three days later, Jesus rose from the dead. But Jesus' work did not end at His resurrection. Neither does it end, it end at His ascension, which we dealt with last week. The book of Acts teaches us that the work of Jesus continues, and it continues across all kinds of boundaries. We have Acts recounting to us that the gospel that is the good news about Jesus as the resurrected Lord and Savior, that news, it started in Jerusalem, the very place, the very place where Jesus had been put to death, but it began to spill over. It broke the boundaries into Judea, that is the surrounding region, and to Samaria, the region beyond. And, and it spread to the utter, the Bible says, the uttermost parts of the earth until finally at the end of Acts, we find the Apostle Paul under house arrest in the city of Rome, and he continues to preach the gospel. So the work of Jesus doesn't end. It doesn't end in the time of Christ in His earthly ministry. It didn't end during the time of the Apostles. The work of Jesus continues now in October of 2021, and we continue to see it. That's the message here of the book of Acts. Jesus is breaking through all kinds of boundaries. Now, this portion of Scripture that we have for us today is before us today uh, is about a unique time in the history of Jesus' followers because it's between two major events, the ascension of Jesus that we find that we read about in, uh, you can see this in verse 10, they're gazing up into heaven as he went, and the coming of the Holy Spirit in, in chapter 2. So between the ascension of Jesus and the coming of the Holy Spirit, what happened between these two major events? This passage that we're looking at is kind of like a bridge between these major events, the ascension of Christ and the descent of of the Holy Spirit, you kind of think, of think about it this way. There is a lot of anticipation. Jesus had just said, wait in Jerusalem until the promise of the Father, that is the Holy Spirit comes, wait in Jerusalem. It's almost as if the pebble is dropping into the pond. We know that the ripples are going to spread out and they're going to hit every edge of that body of water, but it hasn't touched the surface of the water yet. The disciples, the followers of Jesus are waiting for it to happen. The question is, what were they doing while they were waiting? What were they doing during this time of preparation? Now, I just said that this was a unique time in history. Just like Jesus was born as a baby, grew up, lived a perfect life, was crucified, that's not going to be repeated again. So, the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost is an event that will not be repeated again. So the question is, what do we have to learn from this event as Christians who are living in the 21st century? This isn't gonna, we're not in a period of waiting for the Holy Spirit to come. So what do we have to learn from the fact that his disciples, his followers at this time about what they were doing? Well, even though this is a non-repeatable event in history, we can learn from the priorities that these early Christians had during their time of preparation. And and over the course of this passage, I want to point out three major priorities they had, and we're going to put them together into one lesson that we could learn from this extended passage. Three things they focused on. They focused on unity, prayer, and the scriptures. Unity, prayer, and the scriptures. So look at your text here. In verse 14, you see all these with one accord, there is their unity. We're devoting themselves to prayer. We see there is the prayer, and then from here to the rest of the the rest of the chapter, we find a focus on the scriptures, particularly the promises of God. Now, as Pastor Jason was reading our the text this morning, you you probably. Uh, Notice that there were some gory details about uh, the the demise of Judas, and and you may have wondered as, as I as I uh, mentioned in a on a, the uh, the growth sheet that was sent out, you may wonder, okay, what what is this all about? Why why is there so much detail about choosing a replacement for uh, for Judas, and and the detail about the way he he ended up uh, falling, and and he burst asunder, and all this. What's the point of this? Well, I'll talk about that in just a little bit, but but for now, I want to get uh, give us this bird's-eye view of the three priorities that the followers of Jesus had during their time of preparation, that is, their unity, their prayer, and their focus on Scripture, specifically the promises of God. And, and from this, here's the lesson we could learn, that they were unified in prayer that God's promises would be fulfilled. Very simply, they were unified in prayer that God's promises would be fulfilled. So let's focus on, first of all, this idea that they were unified. So look at verse 14 again. All these with one accord. Now, let me just pause here. The word translated with one accord is a favorite word of Luke. Luke loved to use this word. But it has the idea of, of harmony on the deepest level, on an emotional level. Uh, th- there's there's part of this word uh, in uh, and other way, other places it occurs in the New Testament is translated anger right now it's not that they're angry with each other, but anger has to do with a deep visceral feeling so this harmony this unity that they were experiencing w- was a unity in the deepest level of their emotions it's not just that they were they got along with each other it's not that they were generically okay, I think that we could agree about something no. They they were focused together. They were almost as if were breathing together. There was this deep level of unity and harmony. So that's the nature of this unity. But I want I want to know you to notice the people that were unified. The nature of the unity was this deep level emotional unity. But who was unified. We have a list of names, a lengthy list of names, the 11 remaining disciples. But then we also have Mary named uh, the mother of Jesus, his brothers and sisters. The word that's translated brothers could mean the more generic siblings, including Jesus had uh, sisters as well. And the, the brothers, the sisters, the mother of Jesus, Jesus' followers, they were all together and they're unified. Now, I want you to think about something here. What would it take to get this group of people together in one place, praying together? You might assume, oh, they were all just good friends anyway. I mean, they just hung out together all the time. They would all go fishing together. They would all go uh, just wandering in the desert together or whatever people did back there. In the, in the, the, They're just good friends. But, but think about this list here. You had Peter, James, John, and Andrew. They were fishermen blue-collared workers, and these guys smell different than Matthew, the tax collector. Matthew, the tax collector, was most likely a well-educated man of high rank because he had joined forces with the Roman government before Jesus called him to collect taxes from his own countrymen, obviously earning him a very disreputable and unpleasant reputation. That was Matthew. So you've got these fishermen, blue-collared fishy-smelling guys, and then you've got Matthew, this well-educated, probably of a higher status uh, guy who had been associated with the Roman government, and now then you have this guy who's called Simon the Zealot. Simon the Zealot in verse 13. Now, Simon, this, this designation zealot probably meant that he was associated with a group of people who made it their political agenda to overthrow the Roman government. I, we, you, I, you might assume that these are just good, good friends, they hung out, they grew up together, they went to high school together, they did all these things together. No, no, no. We have fishermen, we have a white-collar work worker who was in league with the Roman government, and then you have a guy who's trying to overthrow the Roman government. All the, this is a, quite a diverse group of people. And then add to that the mother of Jesus... Now, the Bible doesn't go into detail into what her state of mind was at this point, but remember that that many of the men in that room had abandoned her son at his time of greatest pain and agony. I don't know about you mothers, but that doesn't seem like it endured them to a mother's heart. Added to that, Jesus' brothers were there. Now, if you know anything about Jesus' brothers, you'll know that the book of Mark and, and Matthew tells us that at one point, they thought Jesus was crazy. They came to a house that was so crowded. Jesus was in the house. It was so crowded, they couldn't even get in. They're like, tell tell Jesus just to just to, just to relax or something because he's out of his mind. They didn't believe in him. You still think that they're a group of friends that would just hang out all the time anyway? Here, Here's the... Here's the reality. Something happened that unified this diverse group of people. It wasn't just because they grew up with the same background. It wasn't just because they all had common interests or a common occupation. Something on a deep level allowed them to set aside those vast differences and come together in one place so that they would be unified. Now, you might think, oh, I know, I know the one thing. It's the fact that they all had a relationship with Jesus, and Jesus had just departed. Well, do you know sometimes what happens to people when their leader goes away? You you know what sometimes happens to people who had, when the leader was there, were arguing about which one of them would be the greatest? Is that the recipe for unity? Is that the recipe for harmony? No, this is the recipe for fighting. This is the recipe for splintering. And yet we find that they were with all all, uh, with, with one accord. They were unified. And the major proof of this is that they were together. They were together. Now, before I talk to you about what unified them, let's talk a little, a little bit about unity here. Unity as the followers of Jesus. Can we just acknowledge that we live in a very polarizing environment? There are a lot of things in our culture today that can just yank us apart. There are a lot of things going on in politics. What we're finding right now is that people tend to be aligning themselves politically more than ever before and it's happening in churches too. We are facing a time in which There there are forces at play that want to get people to align themselves around things other than what is most important. What are we going to do about that? We also find ourselves in a time when there are so many opportunities for things to do. You realize that that the, the disciples of Jesus, the followers of Jesus, they weren't just unified theoretically. They were unified physically. They were in the same place together. They weren't just unified in the sense that, oh, do you, do you think that you should be at harmony with, with James Thomas? Thomas, do you think that you should be at harmony with Peter? Peter, do you think you should get along with Jesus' brothers? Uh, yes, they're like, but I'm not going to be with them. No. They were together, which meant this. They had set aside their own personal agendas their own personal preferences to be with each other. And unity is a theme that is stressed all throughout the New Testament. Here, here let, me, let me tell you this, my, my dear friends, my, my brothers and sisters in Christ, the test of unity is not whether you hang out pe- with people that are like you or that like you. It is what you do when you're with people who are unlike you. That is the true test of unity. It's not whether you hang out with people who are like you or with people who like you. It's what you do when you are with people who are unlike you. And that implies two important things about unity. Unity involves people who are unlike each other. And it involves being with them. It's very simple, but let me just say it again. Unity involves being with people who are unlike. Involves people who are unlike each other and being with them. Usually we don't like to be with people who are unlike us because people who are unlike us, they threaten us. They feel uncomfortable to us. Maybe we'll have to change our ways. Maybe we'll feel awkward. Maybe we won't know what to say. Maybe they'll bring something up when we don't know how to talk about it. Uh, Maybe we just want to turn the other way. This is what happens, but but true unity is a unity of people. See, if everyone, if everyone just clustered into their groups of 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 likes, we wouldn't know whether you know uni- you unified, unity true unity implies and demands diversity. Now, let me ask you this question. I know I'm just emphasizing this. One, I'm going on and on about this one point. But it's very important here because not just because it's here in the text, but because it's a major theme throughout the Bible. John 17, Jesus prayed for it. Ephesians 4, Paul urged for it. We find it in for the, the epistles of John. We find it in nearly every other letter, every other letter of the New Testament. Unity is extremely important. Why is it so important? Because think about this, think about this way. Think about what sin does to people think about specific sins pride anger lust jealousy what happens when when people of those sins get around each other it causes division right it causes people to split apart from each other it causes the breaking of friendships it causes the divide the divisions of marriages if if it is true that on a social level sin splinters, sin disintegrates, sin destroys, then what do you think salvation does? Salvation heals, salvation restores relationships, salvation brings, brings peace where there has been division, it brings healing where there has been brokenness, salvation brings people together, sin divides, grace unites. And so if there is such a thing as salvation from sin and the effects of sin are a splintering, then it stands to reason, does it not, that when salvation comes to people, they become unified. Now the question is, what will they be unified around? How do you get people who are so unlike each other, and here I'm going to be starting to answer the question that I raised earlier, how do you get these, these diverse groups of people, the names that we read, how do you get them together? Do you get them together together? When they have found something that is more important than their preferences. You get them together when they have found something that is more important than their upbringing. More important than their political preferences. More important than the fact that they were hurt by so and so. What could be so important that would bring together people of such diverse backgrounds and circumstances? Here it is this. this. They knew that Jesus saves and they long for the coming of the Holy Spirit that would fill them. This, my friends, is what binds us together and unites us. It is that we are hydrated people who have found water. That is, we are dying people who have found in Jesus the source of salvation. We are starving people who have found the bread of life. That's what unites us. It's because the, what unites us is greater than what divides us. That, and, and here's what that does. That glorifies Christ Jesus. Because it says that there may be some things that are important in my life But there is nothing so important as Jesus. Therefore, there is nothing around whom I should be more concerned to unify myself with you than that, my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. My friends, that is what unified these people as they awaited for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And that is what must unify us. And can I just give to you a, a warning in this sense? You will be Or more accurately, are being tempted to be disunified with other people, perhaps others in this room, over these various issues. If there is a devil, and there is, nothing would make him happier than to see the people of God fighting over little petty things. The people of God, the followers of Jesus, as they awaited the coming of the Holy Spirit, were concerned to be unified, and they found their unity in their common longing that the Holy Spirit would come and fill them. They're unified. Now, I said that Luke really loves this word that's, that's rendered in the English with one accord. I remember I said it's that deep emotional level uh, unity? There's only one place in the New Testament outside of Luke's writings that that word is found. And it is Romans chapter 15. I just want to read it to you because I think this summarizes what the kind of unity the kind of unity that we want to enjoy. This is a prayer from Paul the apostle that he writes near the end of this grand letter, the letter to the Romans. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another. In accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. How is it that you can see past others d- these differences that would splinter us apart? Here it is. Jesus welcomed me, and so I can welcome you. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us. My friends, if we make the basis of our unity, how great we are or how great something else is, something in the politics, something in society, something culture, if we make that the basis of our unity, we are sowing the seeds of self-destruction. But when we make Jesus our priority, There and there only is true unity. They were unified. Second, they prayed. They prayed. Their unity, if you'll notice in the text here, their unity was centered around a particular purpose, and that is prayer. Look at verse 14 of chapter 1. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. Now picture the room here. Not this room, I'm talking about this room that they were, uh, they were in uh, as they gathered together. You have I described several of the disciples. You have Matthew, the tax collector. You have Thomas. Remember Thomas? He is the one that doubted that Jesus had actually risen from the dead? He, he met during a time when Jesus hadn't been present. He said, okay, I'm not going to believe unless I put my finger into the holes in his hands, unless I put my hand into into that, that wound in his side, I'm not going to believe. Remember doubting Thomas? He was there. Mary was there. Philip was there. Peter, James, John, yeah, they're all there. Now, keeping in mind that they were probably well aware of Jesus teaching on prayer, can you just envision, on a, envision how this prayer would have united them? Notice how prayer unites all these different preferences, all these different backgrounds. D- d- water under the bridge with everybody. N- nothing. You, you might think that the relationships uh, of knowing the apostles, they weren't complicated. You think my relations are complicated. There's history with everybody. There's history with them too. Okay, all this history in the room. And yet, consider this prayer. If they had learned Jesus' prayer, and if this was the tenor of their prayer, our Father, our Father in heaven, may your name be hallowed. Remember Jesus had talked about the coming of the kingdom and they had asked about it. Lord, is it this time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus says, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons, but you will receive power and the Holy Spirit comes upon you. They pray, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Keep in mind the hurts in that room. Keep in mind the kinds of wounds that the others had received from each other. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, Lord, but deliver us from evil. You see how a prayer like that tends to unite. They were united around prayer. Why, what is it about prayer? Let's just think about this, my friends. What is it about prayer that unites us? Well, well, prayer unites us because it reminds us, first of all, that we are not God. Because one of the problems that we have in our relationships is that we tend to think that that it's all about me. And as soon as we open our mouths in genuine, sincere prayer and recognize by saying, Our Father, prayer is an acknowledgment that in this universe there is a God and it's not me. And then the kind of prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray is not in the first person. In other words, it is not merely my Father, although there is... I would not say there is something inappropriate about praying my Father because each believer in Jesus Christ can legitimately claim God as his or her Father. And yet, there is something very important and powerful about saying our Father... Because for those of you who believe in Jesus Christ, it is an acknowledgement that we are in Christ toward the Father, brothers and sisters, and that unites us. You see how even the, the two opening words of the Lord's Prayer tends to dissolve the, the, uh, the, all the, the things that can stand between people and unite us. Prayer tends to unify. This is the case in churches in First Timothy chapter two verse eight, don't turn there. let me just read this passage. Paul urges men, men in the church, to pray lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling, because there is a tendency in churches for men to be angry. Paul prays, Paul urges them, instead of being angry, Put down your arms of anger toward each other. Lift your arms in submission to God and pray without anger. Even in families, even in the relationships between husbands and wives, prayer can unify. In a very interesting passage, and and husbands, I think a very important passage for you, Paul says, this is 1 Peter 3, verses 7-10, through Likewise, husbands... Live with your wives in an understanding way. Showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. Now men, husbands, that is a high and holy calling. Live with your wives in an understanding way. But Peter gives this as an added impetus to that command that your prayers be not hindered. It could be that the prayers of couples, married couples in this church, are hindered by the disunity that those couples are experiencing. Can I just urge you with this, my friends, those of you who are married, Pray together, pray together. Set aside time, lay aside your, your your personal agenda to pray together. Families, pray together. Churches, pray together. This is what you are unified around. We have a, we have a time on Wednesday nights, we, we have a Bible study and a time of prayer at 6.30. On Sunday mornings at eight o'clock, we have a time specifically devoted to praying together. This is what we ought to be doing as a church. Why? Because Jesus, our Savior, unites us. They were unified. They prayed. And third, their, their unity and their prayer had a very specific focus. And that it was on, I say, Scripture, that the Scripture was a focus. And we, we could see this in the text from the fact that Peter quotes from two different Psalms in, in, his, in, a, in a speech that he gives to those who are gathered. But these, the scripture is specifically the promises of God. And I, I, by this I mean the promises as revealed in scripture, that is, the, the scripture that is being referred to is our Old Testament. So anything from Matthew, uh, actually anything prior to Matthew, so it's almost the, the full two-thirds of the Bible. If you're holding a Bible, the full first two-thirds of the Bible, what was the scriptures to the, the early followers of Jesus and and so in those scriptures are promises, and those promises are as they were explained by Jesus, and as they focused on, on the the coming of the Holy Spirit, and you can see this in verse twenty of chapter uh, of Acts one. Peter quotes from Psalm sixty nine, and uh, and then in the latter part of verse twenty from Psalm. Uh, 109. Now, this takes us, this focus on Scripture takes us to the question, there, there are two questions I, I think we need to a, uh, answer here, and that is, for the first question is this, why in their focus on Scripture, in their focus on the promises of God, why all this um, focus on a replacement for Judas? Okay, what in the world? It, it's it's like we've gone through the first part of Ch- Acts chapter 1, and we get this, okay? Jesus is with his disciples. He's teaching to them about the kingdom of, of God. And, and he's, he's commissioning them. He said, you should be my witnesses. And he, he ascends to heaven as the exalted king. And now they're all together and they're praying and they're unifying. We get that all makes sense to us. And now there's all this discussion about what happened to Judas and why they need someone to replace him. And then, by the way, I'm not going to get into this this Sunday. They cast lots to find out... <laughs> Which, which of the two should be a replacement for, for Judas? What's going on with this? Well, let me back way up to some early, early promises of God in the book of Genesis. You don't need to turn there, but and this will jog some of your memories as, as to the, the God's promises to Abraham. God said to Abraham long, long ago, he said, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. And even though you are, you and your wife are so old, you, you, there they was way past childbearing age, God says, I'm going to give you a son and I'm going to multiply your descendants. They're going to be like the stars of the sky, like the sand on every beach. You can't even number them, Abraham. They're going to be so, so many. God made a promise. Now, the, the thing that's so important about that promise is this. That promise to Abraham was part of God's promise to undo the curse that had infiltrated the earth ever since human beings decided to sin against God. So the promise to Abraham was part of God's saying this, one day i'm going to dwell with people again and i'm going to make a people of god that i can i can be their god and they'll be my people and that promise to abraham was an integral part of that promise whereby god would restore his rebellious creatures to a right relationship with him and abraham has has a son and his son has a son and his son's son has 12 sons, and they become the 12 tribes of Israel. The 12 tribes of Israel. So that after this point, the 12 tribes of Israel become a very a, a very important entity as the people of God. Jacob, otherwise known as Israel, the, the, the tribes of Israel, like these are God's people. And it became such an important thing that the number 12 was associated with the people of God because there are 12 tribes of Israel that when Jesus comes on the scene as the ultimate spirit-filled, spirit-anointed one, now he is gathering a new people to himself, a people who are organized not around the fact that they are the ethnic descendants of Abraham, but the fact that they are loyal to Jesus, the Spirit-anointed one, the Christos, the Christ, the Messiah. That is the people of God. The people of God are those who find their loyalty and their center in Jesus. And to make that point clear, Jesus chooses 12 of them. That's why the number 12 is so important, because it symbolizes the people of God. And I want to, I'm actually going to read this to you because it is so important. In Luke, remember Luke also wrote Acts. Luke uh, wrote the gospel of Luke and Acts. Luke 22, verses 28 through 30, Jesus, before he is crucified, says this to his disciples. His, remember this 12, his 12 disciples. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. All right, so the number 12 is important because it symbolizes the, the people of God. God will dwell with his people. And Jesus appoints 12 to make that point very clear and sends 12 to spread the message about the kingdom. But the problem is that one of those 12 betrayed the Messiah. The Spirit would come upon the people of God when there were 12 of them. And that would make it abundantly clear that that this is truly a work of God, that this is truly the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. Which is why, after being taught by the Lord Jesus and looking at the scripture, Peter sees in the Psalms a foretelling of how this replacement should be done. That's why he says in verse 20, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp, referring to Judas, he understanding this prophecy is referring to Judas, become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. So Peter and the other disciples saw the necessity of replacing Judas with another apostle who could bear witness to the resurrected Christ, put forth the qualifications for, dis- for an apostle as one who had been with Jesus during his ministry and had seen the resurrected Christ. And as we learn, the lot after praying, they say, it says the lot, had, the lot fell on Matthias and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. What is the very next event? After the apostles are finally full in number, 12 of them, the very next event is this. The Spirit of God comes upon them. Now, that's, that's the answer to the question, why the big deal about a replacement for Judas? Because of the significance of the number 12 as representing the people of God now that would be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, this raises another question I'm going to answer, answer for you. It is this, why pray for something that was promised? What do you think that they were praying about in verse 14? Verse they were devoting themselves to prayer. The answer is so obvious that Luke doesn't even need to give it. It's, it's, Remember, this is just positioned between Jesus' promise that the Holy Spirit would come and the coming of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said the Holy Spirit is going to come. They devote themselves to prayer. The Holy Spirit comes. What do you think they're praying for? They're praying that the Holy Spirit would come. But the question is, if Jesus promised it, why pray for it? And sometimes we can wrestle with that too. Here is the principle. God's promises are never meant to make us complacent or apathetic. God's promises always stir us to prayer and action. God's promises never stifle activity. Yeah, Jesus said, you're going to be my witnesses to the uttermost parts of the world. And it's not like the disciples said, oh, if that's already guaranteed, then we don't need to do anything, right? No, that motivated them to go. The Spirit is going to come. Oh, then why do anything? We just... We could just sit around. No, they prayed. Here is how it works, my friends. When God promises something, instead of stifling your excitement, instead of quenching your appetite, it stimulates your desire. What God promises, you long for, and what you long for, you pray for. And this is not the only place in Scripture this happens. We find this all throughout Scripture. For example, example, in Daniel chapter 9, Uh, Daniel, who is living in exile in the city of Babylon, Uh, he is is, uh, rummaging through some scrolls, it seems. He comes across a scroll of Jeremiah, and Jeremiah prophesied that Israel was going to be restored in 70 years. That was a promise of God. What did Daniel do when he read that prophecy? He started to pray. He didn't say, oh, it's prophesied. It's done. There's nothing more for me to do. No, he said, Lord, please let it happen. And my friends, here's what we need to learn from this. Let God's promises shape and motivate our prayers. When you pray, take everything that God has promised and pray it back to God. God, you've promised that your kingdom will come. Lord, may your kingdom come in my life, in the life of my family. Father, you've promised that your will would be done. Father, may your will be done in my life and in my marriage, in the life of my family, in my home, in my school, in my church. Father, you've promised in Psalm 23 that you are my shepherd and that because of that I will not want. So Lord, would you please meet my needs and shepherd me and lead me by, by school? Squ- by still waters and, and, and through the green pastures. And Lord, you promised me that you will be with me even through death's valley. So, Father, may I know your presence. You see what we're doing? We're just being stimulated and motivated by the promises of God and letting those promises give shape and inform our prayers. That's what the people of God do. God, we, Instead of letting the promises of God stifle our activity, it stimulates our activity in prayers. In fact, what else do we have to pray for if not the promises of God? Why else would we pray were we not guaranteed that God's promises would surely come to pass? You see, as we see as we look at how we apply this, this bridge between the ascension and the coming of the Holy Spirit to our lives, we realize that the the Spirit now has come. We are not in the same position as the followers of Jesus were during those early days when they were in that upper room, gathered about 120 of them, praying for the Holy Spirit to come. My friends, the Holy Spirit indeed has come. And does come to every person who calls to the Lord Jesus in faith and repentance. So what do we do now? What do we pray for now? We pray things like this. Father, I know that you have given me your Holy Spirit. Now may I be filled with your Spirit. May your Spirit control every part of me. I know that your Spirit gives unity to your people. God, in a time that we are threatened by disunity and by polarization, Oh, Lord, may your Spirit unify us. You see what's going on? We're taking the promises of God, and we're letting them inform our prayers. Yes, the Spirit has come, but His work is not done. Let me ask you this. Has the Spirit done everything in your life you want Him to do? My friend, you're a believer in Jesus. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God we read in in the Bible does dwell in you, Paul says, what? know you not. Your body is a temple, a tabernacle, a dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. Let me ask you this. Is the Spirit of God done changing you or is there more work to be done? Have you reached some sort of holy plateau? There's no more room to grow? Or are you longing for the Spirit to overtake uncharted territory in your life that still needs to come under His power and control? My friend, that's what you should be praying for. And you can pray for it in the joy and confidence that God will answer that prayer because those are the prayers he delights to hear and answer. For example, Romans chapter 8, verse 12. So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. That's a prayer you can pray. What about assurance of salvation? I mentioned this. Like, I think it was like, two or three weeks ago that sometimes people struggle. Am I have I really trusted in Christ as my Savior? Am I do I really belong to God? The, the Bible tells us that the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. If you're truly trusting in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you can pray, God, would You give me more of the assurance that I belong to You? Because that is a promise. Help in weakness, likewise the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, even when you don't know what to pray for. The Spirit intercedes for you, and you can pray that the Spirit would continue to do that assuring and sanctifying, that cleansing work in your life. Pray the promises of God back to Him. Indeed every, every promise of God is a promise that we could claim in Jesus Christ. My believing friend, can I encourage you to be unified, to be prayerful, and to let your prayers be informed by God's promises. And if you're not, if you're not trusting in Jesus, or perhaps you don't know if you are, then that is your most urgent need. Maybe you don't know if you are. Here's what it means to trust in Jesus. It means to believe personally that Jesus died for you and to call upon him as your savior and Lord. Have you done that? And if you've done that, my friend, are you being unified around prayer and God's promises? Would you bow your heads with me? Before Jake comes to lead us in our closing song, take some time, please, to in the quietness of this moment to pray these things back to God our father thank you for your promises and may we know them to be true in our lives would you unify us as a church would you help us to be more prayerful i pray that you would bring healing and unity and restoration where perhaps there has been there have been wounds and divisions I pray that you'd comfort every heart that needs comforting. And I pray that you'd draw all of us closer to yourself in Jesus' name.